Check one, two. Hi, my name is Paul. I'm sitting here with Dan, and we're talking about things that will blow your mind. This is Dan Kent. I am here with Paul Anleitner. And uh, hi, Paul. Hey, Dan. Paul has a podcast called Deep Talks, uh, exploring theology and meaning making. Uh, first of all, Paul, um, why did you decide to do that podcast? Well, I had actually, for years, I'd been a teacher uh, in Christian high schools. I'd been teaching biblical studies, theology courses, and I've also been in like vocational ministry since I was 19. Excuse me. And I had developed great relationships with so many people, young people, especially in their 20s, heading into their early adult life, and had grown up in this evangelical world that I had grown up in. And now they were coming uh, into collision with the world outside of their bubble. And so I, you know, over the years, I've had so many opportunities where people have reached out to me and said, I'm trying to unpack this theological idea or this this idea I've been exposed to in a different religion or a different way of seeing the world. Can you help me process it? And um, so I was starting to have all these conversations with people over the years, and I it kind of gotten to the point where I um I I just couldn't. I'm married with three kids, you know. I was uh, you know life is life is wild. I'm a pastor by vocation. And kind of got to the point where it's like, well, I just don't have the time to properly budget to sit down across the table with, I love to do, sit down across the table with somebody and just unpack things for two, three hour long yeah. conversations. And then even when I was doing so, you know, people would ask me, well, what do you think about uh, this subject? And I'd go, well, I'm starting to think about books I could recommend. And all these books I would recommend were like, academic theology books. Mm -hmm. And these are people that have this interest in life's deepest questions, but they're not necessarily going to school for it. And so it was often like, if I was going to hand them this academic theology book, it would have been like me going to a mechanic and going, man, I know there's something wrong with my car. And he hands me like an engineering textbook. And I go like, what am I supposed to do with this? So, um, so that got me just thinking about, boy, how could I possibly take the sorts of conversations you and I are well familiar with that are happening in seminaries, divinity schools around the world, and is there a way like I could possibly distill that stuff down to a level that you still are going to have to, you know, you're going to have to do some some due diligence on, but it might not be as daunting as, you know, picking up a systematic theology textbook or something like that. Because my experience, and I think this is probably your experience too, Dan, is that when I was in seminary, there were no questions that were off the table. And I was welcome to bring any question. Isn't that great? It's awesome. And I'm so thankful. I mean, we're sitting here, not to make like an advertisement for Bethel, (laughs) we're sitting here in Bethel Seminary. I'm so thankful for the professors that even exposed me to ideas that first I thought, no, that's got to be heretical. Hmm. (laughs) And I'm like man, I didn't know that somebody in the church read the scriptures this way or thought this way. And so there's this wonderful atmosphere of this free exchange of ideas. And it was beautiful. And yet so many people's day-to-day experience in churches where they brought up a question and it felt like, I don't know who I can ask this to. And if I do, I'm going to be put on some watch list. (laughs) So I was getting all these questions in particular for, you know, several months. This is, I started this podcast last year. And I begin all these questions about Jordan Peterson, right. this Canadian psychologist. And 
uh, especially a lot of young men were connecting with his stuff and they were coming and going, man, a lot of the things this guy has to say sounds like Christianity, but in other ways it doesn't. What do you think about him? So I was like, I'm just going to record a, yeah. a podcast about it. And it, it helped. People said it was helpful. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I'd been given this great gift of having like a, a seminary education. And I felt like, yeah. boy, I've been entrusted with this. Right. And what, you know, the, the biblical model of we, we're blessed to be a blessing to the world. And so mm-hmm. I was like, well, I'm just going to start capturing conversations, ex- help expose people to stuff that maybe they didn't even know existed. Yeah. Well, you and I, full disclosure, uh, Paul and I both have the same degree, which is a very, very <laughs> obscure a degree. It's a very <laughs> it's so niche, niche degree. It's called Christian thought, but I call it, uh, what do I call it? I call it uh, philosophical theology. Yep, That's too. what I call yep. it. So is that what you call it yep, also? Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I know of, you know, even the people who graduated here, there's maybe four or five that graduated with me with the same degree. And it's, <laughs> but it's so, you just wrestle with questions in that degree. And, um, and it's weird because like people, it only takes, I mean, you can come up with a really good question in an instant. Like it could just strike you like, what about that? And it just hits you. But the answer <laughs> a lot of times is this tedious long journey. Yes. And and when you're if when you meet somebody and you say, Well, you know, I'm an open theist, and they say, Oh yeah, well what about this? And it's like, Well, I don't have an hour and a half, I gotta catch the bus, you know? <laughs> but like your People podcast ask you that at the bus stop? That's yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past them. <laughs> yeah. Let me say that. But your podcast is uh, um, a slower, kind of um, a more careful look at these different issues. And so the Jordan Peterson, the first you have three episodes, uh, almost three hours just yeah. dealing with with Jordan well, Peterson. It was, funny. And- it was funny because at first I thought you know maybe I'll just do you know uh, like rapid fire. I used to do with students all, all the time we'd call it free question Friday and we just draw a question that they had from a hat mm-hmm. and I try to answer it really really quickly. I thought about that but then I've seen you know the number one downloaded podcast in the world. Is- Greg Boyd apologies and explanations. <laughs> I bet I bet that's it. After this episode it will be <laughs> <Yeah>. right. <laughs> You know, it's up there, but the number one downloaded podcast in the world right now is the Joe Rogan experience. And the guy brings people on for three hours of conversation. And you go, maybe we don't give people enough credit. And we're so used to, I I haven't watched like a late show in quite some time, but, um, you know, there was a guest on, God's, what's her name again? And she's actually going to be in the new Star Wars movie. So it kind of caught my attention. I'm a bit of a Star Wars nerd. So I was like, I'll, 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 I'll at least watch the YouTube clip after. And they talked for like a minute, you know? And it was like, okay, I want to I want to explore this some more. And so, you know, some people might find it long-winded, which is just fine. But um, Well, I, uh, I listen to it on one and a half speed. Just full yes, disclosure. That's, that's the beautiful thing it about is. podcasts, too. Well, and right? your voice, you've got a really great voice for podcasts, <laughs> by the way. But your voice is, is perfect because you articulate really well and um, it works really good on one and a half speed, especially for topics that I'm more familiar yeah. with. Like yeah. I, I've already read John Walton and all that kind of right. stuff. And so right. I, I, you, so you have a, a series on on the Bible and science and, and you talk a lot about John Walton. I've read those. And so I, I listen on one and a half speed and then uh, and then parts that I'm less familiar with, I just put on normal speed. But, yeah. it's, but you, you, your your voice really lends itself well oh, to thanks, that. Dan. So I appreciate I, I recommend I recommend the podcast if you want something deeper and more thorough and the one i just listened to was um uh the it's a two-part series so far on understanding our meaning crisis Mm. and you did a really good job of kind of going back into history and showing the history of meaning making and how historical events and historical ideas have shifted and kind of manipulated how people make meaning 
Let me jump into some questions. Yeah. yeah. Are you ready? Definitely. Okay. Right away, do we have a meaning crisis and what the heck do you mean by that? I think I think it'd be hard to not see that we're in a full-on meaning crisis in the United States and in large part in western civilization. But let's focus in more specifically on the United States. I think we've got some evidence um some some evidence we could point to to go we're in this deep meaning crisis where people people don't have a map they, the the map doesn't lead them anywhere and they're dealing with these deep feelings of nihilism so some of the things i look at and i go wow this is a major problem suicide is the second leading cause of death among people ages 10 to 34 hmm. not like i mean the second leading cause of death that's insane hmm. Um, there, there were more, there were twice as many suicides in 2017. This is the most re- recent data I found. There were twice as many suicides in 2017 than there were homicides wow. in the United States. And then if you want is a, a good, uh, reader of culture, I look around and I see, I mean, we can all go all the way back to the nineties. We see, does art reflect life or does light reflect art? And it's, it's obviously a little bit of both. But you start to see in pop culture this change in narrative. I mean, a great, great example of this. You go back to like Independence Day, the movie Independence Day. Super <laughs> hopeful. You know, the president. Everybody loves the president. Right. And, you know, we're going to defeat the aliens. Oh, my goodness. And then, then you watch a movie like Fight Club. Yeah. And then the Just ma- like two years later. I mean, two years later. Yeah. And right in the middle of that, you've got Seinfeld, the show about nothing, which is a wonderful case study of nihilism. All of these characters are, they're not heroes, right? right. They're, they're not, their lives aren't to be looked at and exemplified. And it's a, literally, it's a show, a show about nothing, but yet this, this show resonated with people so deeply. Now you fast forward in today and I see, I mean, so many people are into like Rick and Morty, um, Bojack Horseman, these deeply nihilistic comedies. And you have this entire meme culture, this nihilistic meme culture, which if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's out there. It's crazy, especially among people in this age group where suicide is the second highest leading cause of death. And you start going, what's going on here is school shootings. In many regards, this is the best time in human history to be alive. Hmm. And yet people feel this deep sense of dissatisfaction, uncertain, uncertainty about what their own individual purpose is. And so uh, the place I begin is I start to look at and I go, you know, throughout human history, there have been these big questions um, that people have sought to have answered, right? Um James Sire had this classic book called the Uni- uh, the Universe Next Door, right? right. Yeah. Great textbook of Christian thought. It's wonderful. I used it for years, and he had seven questions, and I, I've adapted those seven down to six six questions. Right throughout human history, you go to any culture at any time, and people have asked these sorts of questions. The first one: What is ultimate reality? What's the foundational layer of reality? What is behind it all? What is the the necessary thing by which all contingency derives their being, right? So Christians have historically answered, well, ultimate reality is the triune God. You can't peel the onion back any further. This is the foundational layer of reality. It's the ground of being itself. 
The second question, right, is like, what's reality actually like? Is it, um, is it purely made of matter and nothing more? Is it, um, created? Is it autonomous? Is it ordered? Is it chaotic? Is there something called spirit or consciousness involved in reality? Uh, third question, what is, what does it mean to be a human? Right? So as you start to answer those other questions, you start reflecting. And the answers to each lead to the, the answers, answers to the each, next. Like you, you, when you start answering these questions, I started doing a video series. You can check it out on YouTube if you want, um, where it's kind of a fun brief. You know, I use stuff from like pop culture and movies to kind of address these questions. I've got it. I've gotten through question three. We're going to finish four, five, and six at a later date. Um, but you start seeing how there's a story everybody believes about reality. But if we don't lead, as like Socrates said, the the examined life, or you know, Socrates famously, or this could be just apocryphal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he said the unexamined life isn't worth living. So if we look at this narrative that we believe about reality, there are certain questions that are foundational to making that story make sense. What is ultimate reality? What's reality actually like? What does it mean to be a human? What happens to a person at death? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a huge question. How and why is it possible to know anything at all? And then finally, the question of ethics, like, is there right and wrong? So we used to have this system, and um, that's not to say America was a Christian nation. You know, I agree with Greg's thesis. You know, yeah. Myth of a Christian Nation is a great, great book. There's never been a time in which America has looked like Jesus. Right. Yet, there was at least a story that people believed about reality that answered these questions. And yet in Western civilization, this went through a a pretty um, significant change over the past couple of years. How did you go is like Charles Taylor, the philosopher Charles Taylor asked, how do we go from at 1500 in the world, you know, especially in the Western world, everybody believed in God Mm -hmm. to today. It's really hard for people to believe in God. Well, what happened? Briefly, like I'll, I'll try to go through this really, really quickly, but you, you had this enlightenment era that began really coming out of the scientific revolution. Isaac Newton, Isaac Newton, who was a theist and held to these certain beliefs about reality, right? That God was ultimate reality, that reality was ordered, that we could actually know things about reality because this good God, this good ultimate reality intended for us to discover and discern things about it. And so for Newton, he had this picture of a knowable, discernible reality and humans had the capability of knowing and understanding it through cause and effect. And so we had this picture of this ordered universe Mm. that was discernible through reason. And it really pulled us, pulled us out of this age of, a lot of superstition that had happened in the medieval period. So Newton comes along. He's like, yeah, it's ordered, right? It's discernible. It's knowable. We can use reason. And it's like, awesome. Great. Then other guys came after Newton. They're like, well, yeah, it's knowable. It's, we can understand it. There's these laws of cause and effect. And they said, well, maybe God is just like a clockmaker. Because if he's really, really omniscient, and if he's really perfect, well, the universe that he would make would have to be perfect. And, and then he wouldn't need to step in and fix anything. Right. He can just set it and forget it. <laughs> because if he doesn't, then maybe that points to 
him being a faulty designer, right? It comes back to the problem of evil, which yeah. is the perennial problem, right? And so they go, well, maybe he's just a clockmaker. And that, that, that brought about the rise of deism, which was really important in our nation's history. Mm-hmm. Many of our founding fathers were, were deist. But he just wound up the clock and he just wound up in the clock. Maybe and, he'll come back later. Right. So God is ultimate reality. Reality is still ordered. It's still knowable. But then then this led to some other other problems because if we were just stuck in this universe of cause and effect that could go back to the Big Bang and God just said it and forget it and he left it and we're now just cogs in a machine. There's some massive problems that creates for human beings, right? And one of them that should hopefully jump out at people right away is that there's no such thing as free will. Hmm. If we are just cogs in the machine and we're in this process that can be traced back to the big bang of cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. I liken it to a picture of dominoes. If you set up dominoes on a table and God ends up being the guy that sets up the dominoes perfectly, the blueprint model, right? Right. He sets it up perfectly the way he wants it. And all God does is press that first domino down and keeps going, going, going. Well, our very conversation is nothing more than the result of a previous domino falling. And the logical consequence of that is you and I don't have free will. And once we start losing free will, that creates a big problem for mm-hmm. meaning. So that started this massive problem, which only only got worse um, as we head into the 18th, 19th century, when people started to go, if God's just the clockmaker, do we really need him? Right. Right? Uh, <laughs> Thanks for the clock. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks for the clock. <laughs> and then um, Darwin, and I'm not like anti-Darwin. I'm not, uh, you know, but I think it's important to note that Darwin's language, when um, Darwin published Origin of Species, it was it wasn't like people all of a sudden were like, man, the world's been around for a really, really long time, and there seems to be some sort of progress of animal life and life on this planet. People had already been talking about that for for quite some time but there used to be this view like William Paley for example thought as he looked at creation he, he called it a, a myriad of happy creatures hmm. <laughs> you know people had this natural theology where they saw life in this state of balance yes there was violence in it but there was also beauty Darwin's language was much more focused on the violence hmm. in creation and that created this again problem of evil this theodicy problem for many people where they're like, boy, if the way that we've experienced diversity of life on this planet has been exclusively through violence, through survival instincts, and nature, like as Tennyson said, is red in tooth and claw, we again have the problem of evil, which I think people just found it easier to go. It's just easier to believe there isn't a God behind this violent, cruel world. What does that do when you say, what, if you, I mean, first of all, can you do that? Can you just say, I don't believe in God. I just, I'm going to live without a religion. No, I, I, don't, I don't think you can. Um, we ultimately. Well, what about people who claim that they do though? We need to define God. Okay. Right. And that's, that's, that's the problem. It's not that, you know, in the rise of naturalism, that people all of a sudden didn't have an answer to the first question, what is ultimate reality? Yeah. Everybody has an answer to that question. And for naturalists, it just became the universe and matter. And so you had this mindless 
universe. And the Greeks, going all the way back to the Greeks, there was this notion that, yes, there was matter, but there was always mind behind it, intelligence. There was, it wasn't just physical, material processes playing out. And the, the Christian tradition affirmed that, and they named that as, as God, as ultimate reality, the God revealed in, in Jesus. But, you know, naturalists just came around and said, well, there isn't a God, and God doesn't exist, but that they just have a new name for God. It's the universe. Mm. It's matter, and it's nothing more. And so now we get into this era where we're now full on, as Charles Taylor and guys like him, James K. A. Smith, call a secular age. That is now the predominant view of reality. And if you doubt that, just spend any time in any other sort of academic discipline other than theology, right? The assumed narrative, what it means to be secular, right, is to have a neutral standpoint. And the neutral standpoint means we assume that ultimate reality in no way, shape, or form is mind or has God or right. is personal in any way. It's the material universe. So you have God in that sort of definition. If that is God, then we start going through these other questions. Well, then reality isn't created. It's autonomous and it's chaotic. It's not ordered. It's hmm. random. And if it's random, and I got here randomly, what does that, that say about me? You know, the Christian story has this immense value attached to humans as being image bearers. Crazy amount of value placed yeah. on humanity with that label that we were made in the image of God. You remove that, and now we've got this, here's the massive problem, right? So you lose free will, but this is where nihilism in the 20th century became such a, a big deal. Not only do you lose free will, but if we have this mindless, chaotic, random universe, nothing more than a series of cause and effect, and we are, um, I forget who the author is, are nothing more than privileged apes. Yeah. The problem that we experience now is now we can't even say with certainty that anything we observe about reality is true or false. Mm. Because even our very observations about reality are fated to us in this yeah. closed universe. So this is where people came to the point where they're like, there's no meaning behind it all. There's no meaning anywhere because even if there is, our observations about, this is the crazy part, right? The irony of it is that in this new way of seeing the world, this naturalistic framework, it's not really new. The universe, this chaotic, random universe we have observed by some sheer chance of luck to be that way. And then we can't even be certain that it actually is that way. Hmm. Because if we believe that it is, we have to confess that we were fated to see it that right. way. And that's where people go, it's pointless. Yeah. It's meaningless. And so when this becomes like the predominant narrative story that people believe, and yet we are meaning-making machines, we go searching for meaning, and this story doesn't give us one. It creates this massive internal conflict. And a lot more psychologists are picking up on this today. You know, there's a guy, um, Robert Keegan, for example, there's this wave of meaning-making psychologists that are picking up on this phenomenon. And they're going, we're in this massive crisis and a huge part of it, it's not just the biological chemical processes in our brain that do lead to depression, anxiety. Those are real. Right. But underneath that, people don't have a narrative framework for why they should keep fighting for a right state of mind, for fighting to get through their 
experiences of depression and anxiety to actually make a difference in the world. Yeah, I think uh, and we, Greg and I were just talking about this um, I don't know, a month ago. Uh, I think we had an episode about depression. And one of the, the points that I made there, and I, I believe this, is that a lot of times I think depression is an indicator of a brain that's working properly. Right. And, and um, you know, because you, you look at like, you know, major depressive disorder, you're looking at, th- according to the DSM-4, I haven't seen the statistics in the DSM-5, but according to the DSM-4, you're looking at 3 to 4% of the population. We've got a problem way bigger than 3 or 4% of the population. And so what accounts for that? And that, and, and that I would propose is if you're feeling depression, if you're not part of that 3 or 4%, you probably have some meaning crisis um, or you have a sense of futility or a sense of powerlessness. And, uh, and so it, it's, you're getting at a lot of those same things that, that I think accounts for the depression and, and so forth. That, you know, but as soon as you say, well, depression is a disease – and it and it is in three to four percent of these cases, um, you're you're helping people avoid the real issues. You're mm. helping some people avoid the real issues, mm. which I think is a disservice to people. And um, and that's why I think you know exploring some of these meaning elements is a lot more powerful. Therapeutically, I think it can be a lot more powerful than um, than the alternatives. So. Yeah, and just to be clear, I, this isn't about the bad guy atheists out right. there. Yeah. There's a reason why people left the Christian story. And, you know, a huge part of it had to do with uh, maybe we didn't have a good theodicy for people, but it's larger than that too. It's much larger than that. Mm. Uh, people, you know, 35% of young adults who have left the church, who spent formative years, teenage years in the church, uh, were asked, Barna did this research, and uh, asked them, well, why, do, why, do you, why, don't you leave, why did you leave the church? 35% of them said that they didn't think the church was a place that they could have their deepest questions of life answered. Wow. So we haven't done a good job. No. The rise of the nuns has been well documented, not N-U-N, N-O-N-E-S, the non-religious and for the first time, we just saw this happen uh, this past year. For the first time in U.S. history, there are more people who identify as not religious mm. than any other religious group in the United States. Mm. So there's something wrong with we we as the church, as Christians, also need to look and go, this isn't like the bad boogeyman atheists out there. This isn't Richard Dawkins' fault. Right. There's something about the way we've told the story of Jesus that people have gone and said, ah, that's not helping. Yeah. What do you think that is? Oh boy, there's never, there's never just a, one silver bullet to this, yeah. and it's here's I think a few reasons. One, we haven't had, um, we haven't had a holistic spirituality mm-hmm. offered by and large part, especially I'll speak as an evangelical. We haven't offered a holistic spirituality to people where they can engage the world that God has created through general revelation and simultaneously been offered the um, other path of ascent, which has been special revelation. We haven't affirmed, you, you might have different denominations, one what emphasizes mystical experiences and communion with God and a life of prayer and devotional and worship. And many of those same places will go, well, there's this massive global conspiracy in the sciences. Hmm. <laughs> And you can't believe it because you have to, you have to agree with our reading 
of, of Genesis. And then on the other hand, you have certain streams which are so heavy on emphasizing the life of the mind, but they go, yeah, I mean, essentially the work of the Holy Spirit stopped when the, the you know, the canon of scripture was closed in many regards and you go, and so people are, they're integrated beings, right? Mm-hmm. And they're, the knowledge of God is not limited to one path of general revelation or one path of special revelation. Both of these pathways intertwine, they overlap, they connect together. And uh, I don't know if we've done a good job of showing people that as this holistic um, Christian spirituality. Okay, well, we're we're kind of... It's time is flying yeah. here, so let me uh, ask you a couple more quick yeah. questions. Um, I want to, I want to, I want to get this for sure. So I'm going to okay, ask you this okay. next: uh, What's the craziest thing you believe, <laughs> and why do you believe it? Oh man, you know we, that's a sliding scale, right? I mean, <laughs> to most of the world, the idea that God became a Jewish man, born of a virgin, was a uh, crucified and then somehow came back from the dead that's pretty absurd that's a strange one it is a strange one like and and, and kierkegaard got it right i'm a massive kierkegaard fan massive kierkegaard fan and, and, and kierkegaard got it right that it's um we we have to come face to face with the absurdity of the world right and uh the way that we enter into knowledge of god is actually through faith in these um oh gosh what did he what did, what did he call it these um not contradictions. It's not a contradiction. I'm totally drawing a paradox. Yeah. These great paradoxes. God became a man. And the knowledge, our knowledge uh, of the the truth comes as we place faith in this God-man. Anyway, so obviously that's pretty crazy. But to be maybe more fun and specific, this is one that isn't very popular. <laughs> but I am of the opinion that I don't think you can understand the New Testament in particular, you can't understand Jesus's ministry in the Gospels without reading the book of Enoch. Really? I don't think you can understand it. And Enoch is referenced. I'm not, I don't think, first of all, I don't think Enoch, Enoch 1 in particular. The Wait, book, Enoch, is that is that in the Old Testament? No, it's not. Where is that? Um, it, is that a Kindle book? Uh, is, <laughs> well, yes, who, I'm sure you could find it. Is this an N.T. Wright book? An N.T. Wright book. That would be fun. No, it's much more like a Tolkien book. Really? Yes. Um, You know, written, you know, attributed to Enoch, clearly not written by Enoch. This is one of the apocryphal texts. Apocryphal, second temple period, um, probably from around 300 BC. Hmm. I, uh, if you read the Old Testament and then you jump into the New Testament and you're, you're like following, let's say you wanted to do a deep dive on Satan and demons and studying that in the scriptures. And you go through the old Testament and you jump in Matthew, you'd go, Whoa, 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 whoa. What, what happened here? You know, I always thought it funny as a kid, you take a, such a central story in the old Testament that we always spent a lot of time on it in Sunday school, the, the Exodus of Israel. Now, Satan's not mentioned one time yeah. in any of that. There's no demons. No demons are cast out of people. Nothing. And actually, guys like John Walton make the case that, like, even in the book of Job, this would be 
somewhat controversial, that the Satan mentioned there in Job shouldn't be understood as the Satan in the New Testament, that all it means was he's, he's the challenging angel, mm-hmm. right? Which is actually the story of Balaam, right? Balaam's donkey, the, the angel that stops on the road. Guess what the name of that one is? Satan. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So anyways, but you jump in the New Testament and it's like, you've got this like, you've got this like cosmic battle going mm-hmm. on and you go, where did that happen? I don't think you can understand that until you understand um, the way sec- people in that second temple period thought, which was influenced by these apocalyptic texts, these intertestinal books, of which there's this crazy story of Enoch. And in this story, it's, um, you know, it's, it's sometimes called the Book of the Watchers. And it gives you the backstory on that weird, weird text in Genesis right. 6 before the flood. And my wife, when she listens to this, is going <laughs> to laugh because I, I told her about this question. She goes, oh, you're going to talk about the Nephilim. <laughs> There's this weird section in Genesis 6 that talks about the sons of God um, had relations with the daughters of men. And then they gave, you know, they created the Nephilim, the great men of renown. And then God initiates the flood and you go whoa pump the brakes what's what's happening there so enoch is this like backstory into that and in this story it tells of the fall of these angels and it tells how these angels led humans into violence it's all these weird things like it taught women how to use makeup (laughs) which i just think taught men magic and their sentence so enoch gets this vision of heaven in heaven of someone called the son of man which is wild, right? Someone called the son of man whose job description it will be to enter into this arena in the earth and to bind up these demons and throw them into a place called the abyss. Hmm. And then you read the story like Jesus with the demoniac, the Gadarene demoniac. And uh, what is, what do they say? You know, the demons within him say, well, don't, don't throw us into the abyss. You go, like, what's that all about? Right. What's the abyss? Well, if you had any knowledge of, of Enoch, and we, we really don't know how widespread people read Enoch, but it's mentioned several times. Quotes from the book of Enoch are mentioned several mm-hmm. times in the New Testament. So obviously it was a thing. They go, don't throw us in the abyss. And you go, what is that? And you go, whoa, the son of man's mission is to come defeat Satan, right? I mean, this is, this is Hebrews, right? Uh, to... Uh, um, the author of Hebrews says what, that it was uh, the, the, devil, uh, the one who had the keys to, to death. I should probably actually look up the specific yeah. reference. Um, First John says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, right? Yep. And the devil's been sinning from the beginning. Um, and you see this story now where this one called the Son of Man enters into the story. And what's he doing? He is binding demons. He is casting them. And what has he done? He has come to defeat Satan in his work, death, uh, work through his death and resurrection on the cross, which was the primary way, by the way, the early church understood Christ's atoning work on the cross. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some quirky things about like ransom theory and stuff like that. I don't think Jesus had to like physically exchange prisoners or anything right. like that. But that is definitely the way the early church understood it. Mm. And it doesn't really make sense unless you understand this backstory, which yeah. just to be clear, I don't think should be in the canon of scripture. <laughs> oh, really? Right. Okay. I don't think it should be in the canon of scripture. Why not? I, Let me ask you, is I, there, do you have reasons at the top of your head? Um, well, gosh, I, I, one, I think that just opens up. Pandora's box to all sorts of other questions. So 
I kind of yeah. don't want to go there. Yeah. Two, I do trust the work of the Spirit working in His church to have given us the the canon of Scripture that we that we have mm. that we have today. So. Um, the other thing that I like about your answer is that I think the the craziest thing that I feel that I believe in is also the existence of Satan and demons. Yeah. Like, I'm just like, uh, I wish I didn't believe in this, but right. I, unfortunately, that's where the evidence leads. And I and I, I told you this before we started recording. I'm like the least spiritual person I know in terms of like you know thinking that there are angels or demons doing things or even the holy spirit i believe that the holy spirit is doing stuff but i don't know what the holy spirit is doing i have no right. clue i just don't have the ability to discern that and and this idea that there are angels and demons especially um it's an awkward belief but uh you know that's uh, without satan you end up with a god like in the movie mother i don't know if you've seen that no where it's just like everything bad that happens is ultimately because of god right and so i feel like you have to have that that satan figure in order to make sense of a lot of the stuff in, in the scriptures but um. yeah and i actually i mean i don't think you know people can get hung up on naming it like demons and they can go boy there there's there's area i mean there's probably some evidence that you know during jewish or ancient israel's interactions with the persians that there there may be some sort of influence on their language and their thought. And I think that that's not a bad thing. I think like God works in culture in that way. I mean, for heaven's sake, one of the primary ways that Christ has been revealed to us is in John 1. And, and John uses this, this very, very Greek idea of the logos, which was an idea that was around long before John had written it about there needing to be some sort of mediating action between a, an unapproachable, seemingly unapproachable ultimate reality and our ability to discern it in the world. So I've got a, I've got a view of God working in culture, which affirms that stuff. But I think that I don't think people necessarily have to be like, well, you know, I, I don't feel comfortable thinking about like little demons with horns and pitchforks, but I think any just gloss gloss just any sort of experience of reality you look at creation you go there's clearly a force of malevolence Mm. at work here and there is we we believe in evil even people that don't have as we talked about earlier even people that don't have this story where evil should even be a thing Mm -hmm. are going uh me too movement right right like this sort of degradation of women and objectification of women the poor treatment of women women that we have seen in much of masculine culture that only makes sense if there is a right and wrong in the world yeah in your studies of so you have a series on genesis and uh, theology basically um and you study John Walton, and you studied a lot of stuff for this. It's a good series. How many is it? Like four episodes, I think? Yeah, three or four, something it's like three that. Three or four hours yeah. of, of content. Yeah. Um, and you kind of carefully look at a lot of the issues in trying to understand what Genesis is saying about the world compared to what science says about the world and some of the troubles that we can get into when we use um, the Bible as our scientific map. Um, and, and So what I want to know is uh, there's just so, there's an infinite amount of topics and issues that you could talk about there but i guess what i'd want to know is what was the most pleasantly surprising thing that you discovered in your research on genesis and science 
Um, I don't know if I could say this is pleasant, but I think the most important for me was that I had a really bad hermeneutic and all hermeneutics means is the, I guess you could call it the science of reading, you know, and understanding a text. I had a bad biblical hermeneutic. Um, one that was, I wasn't fully aware of it and I taught Bible for a really long time, Hmm. you know? I had a very reader-centered hermeneutic, meaning, all right, if we're to believe that the scriptures are inspired, uh, in what way are they inspired? Well, if we were to go through some sort of thoughtful process of how God communicates, we would say the ultimate source of inspiration is God himself, right? And I think a, a, a Christian affirmation has been that God vested inspiration in human authors to communicate his message. So my goal then is to try to get as close to the source of inspiration as possible, which means I need to step into the world of the author and the world that the author lived in. And what it doesn't mean is that my questions of a text are inspired. And a lot of what I'd found, and this was a long journey in Genesis. I mean, the podcast I recorded just recently, but this was a massive, massive journey. I grew up in a very young earth, young, young earth, literal six day creation. Adam and Eve uh, lived, you know, six to 10,000 years ago. There was an actual firmament, firmament, a dome of water and that thing popped caused the flood and the the global flood is why you know the grand canyon is the way that it is etc etc that was the way of understanding the world you know these were sorts of questions uh, lectures that i would hear in like my middle school bible classes and just to be clear I, i i don't think that if you believe that that you're like not a not a christian you know i and i'm not a scientist so i'm approaching this i approach this like theologically and biblically when i started to actually give myself to the inspiration of scripture and believing that God did that, invested that in human authors, I I came up against all sorts of questions that I had that I thought were inspired, that modern people think are inspired, that I really don't think are anywhere in the purview of the ancient audience to that time. Questions like the age of the earth. For example, the very scientific questions that we bring to Genesis 1, in a pre-modern world, they don't, that's not even on their grid. This is not a story that God has inspired. That doesn't mean that there can't be meanings, multiple layers of meaning in a text for us today. But if we don't start with as close to the location of inspiration as we possibly can, yeah. we can get off in some weird things, weird, crazy things. So, um, you know, that was the larger, the larger process. And, and, and then what I... Um, what I began to see was this beautiful story. Uh, the Genesis, you know, especially Genesis one through three tells this beautiful story to these ancient people. And uh, you know, it's this story that helps them understand the world that they live in. And I want, I want you to think about, let's say not everybody agrees on this, but let, let's say this story was actually first written down while, while Israel was in exile in Babylon. And while in exile in Babylon, they're hearing the story of how God made a good place. And that good place, he put people in to act as caretakers for that place, for the betterment of created world around them. And he gave them a way to live in that place. And the people didn't live in that way. And they were banished from that place. You're sitting on the shores of Babylon hearing that story. What's that story about? 
it's this, uh, it has this immense meaning and that, that, that doesn't mean there couldn't be scientific insights, but when we start asking these questions of the text, we're saying that our questions are inspired and mm-hmm. instead of, um, really holding to Christian affirmation, the inspiration of scripture is vest is from God vested in human mm-hmm. authors located in the text. And my questions might be terrible questions. Right. Well, and it's interesting, uh, I think Walton talks about how, like, the evolution of scientific questions, where even the questions that they were asking in the 19th century are profoundly different than the questions that we're asking now. So why should we expect the Bible to, like, meet all of those types of different scientific questions based on the evolution of science? It's, 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 it was just intended to answer the questions that it was intended to answer. And it gives a counter narrative to the one, and this is the beautiful thing about Genesis, it still offers, Genesis 1 through 3 offers us a counter narrative narrative to the world story that we are in right now. It offers the story of a good creation intentionally created and ordered by God and where humans have a specific purpose to care for it. That's totally counter to our, our, our narrative that of naturalism it's totally counter to that story it's very similar i want to read you real quick like this story from you know probably 1500 to 2000 years before christ okay so this actually comes from a text it's called the instructions to 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 mary kari and it's dating back to ancient egypt now listen to this story okay well tended is mankind god's cattle he made sky and earth for their sake he subdues the water monster he made breath for their noses to live They are his images who came from his body. He shines in the sky for their sake. He made them for plants and cattle, fowl and fish to feed them. He makes daylight for their sake. He sails by to see them. He has built his shrine around them. This is, this is from, in again, an ancient Egyptian text. And this gives you an idea of the sort of story about man's purpose, humanity's purpose in the world that was the primary purpose of these creation stories. And so when you see that, you begin to understand like the world of the ancient authors. You start seeing all of these brilliant, beautiful things about the creation story that stands out to you. And you go, wow, God had a counter narrative for his people at that time. What's the counter narrative today? Personally, and people can disagree with me on this, I don't think the counter narrative is that we have to believe that um, the earth isn't millions of years old. Because I don't think that story is in there at all. It's not demanded on us to believe that. But there is a counter story. There's a counter story that we'd have to believe that, no, there's an ultimate reality who's a personal God, who's created people, not just as, though I do think, you know, we can say we are animals. We are not merely animals in this planet. We're caretakers. And humanity has been called to the special vocation. And then this whole biblical theology plays out. And it's beautiful. And now you start seeing, like, oh, God called Abraham to restore that vocational call. And he kind of did a good job. He didn't do a very good job. and But he instilled this covenant with Israel. And Israel was supposed to be caretakers for the planet. And they sucked at it too. But God comes in Christ as the proper caretaker, the right viceroy, the true Adam, the second Adam. And then he goes and says, hey guys, I'm giving you my spirit so that you can continue on the mission in the world. And now the church, we get to be the people that go, we're reclaiming this vocational call. And it's like, whoa, that's amazing. And that's that's a story that I think people are immense. It's true across all ages and times, no matter how the science changes, 
You can't change that story. Well, that's awesome. Well, we did cover most of the questions. We just went an hour longer than <laughs> I okay. intended. That's uh, all right. So, Paul, uh, what? Won't you? Uh, what's what's your favorite way to be contacted if people want to follow you or whatever? Yeah. What's I mean, if you guys want to check out the the podcast and go to deeptalkstheology.podbean.com, it's also available on iTunes, Spotify, all of those places. I'll put a link in the show. Yeah, notes. Yeah, that, that's great. If you wanted to connect with me on Twitter, it's just at Paul Anleitner. That's a weird look. spelling. Spell that for us. <laughs> A-N-L-E-I-T-N-E-R. So that's a good place to good place to find me. I love I love dialoguing with people. Even again, I always welcome different perspectives. If you hear hear something I say and you go, dude, that's just out there. Let's let's talk about it. I love the back and forth too. So yeah. yeah. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, thanks, Paul.